Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Coach McKay. Um, I, I want to say welcome to all the Redskins fans. And um, by, by the very small chorus of boos I hear, I recognize that there are some Cowboy fans in here. In, in, my, in my 30 years almost of walking with God, I've been able to see prayer affect many people's lives. <laughs> but the one area I haven't seen change is when I pray that Cowboys fans can repent. I just <laughs> repent of, of their enjoyment of that star. They're incurable. They can't be fixed. But I want to, for all of the people who are interested in football, let me say first that I thank you so much for all of the prayers that you prayed during our very difficult season. It was, uh, with the passing of Sean Taylor, it was a tough, tough time. But it, it opened up some things in people's hearts, and we saw scores of people, ball players, front office personnel, coaches, trainers, come to a greater knowledge of the truth, and we are still having the privilege of leading people to the feet of Jesus. So I thank you for all of your prayers. It's been a very fruitful time in that organization. If I can, I'd like to share with you a little bit about, um, about me. I've uh, been walking with the Lord for about 27 years, been pastoring, and been in ministry for about 26 I have a beautiful bride named Cynthia, with whom I've been married for 21 years. I have seven children, one 20, one 17, one 15, one 14, one 12, 10, and then seven, five boys, two girls. I happen to pastor a a church which is really the finest in the land. They're a great group of people and I love them dearly. And I am also blessed to have great friends, much like Coach, Coach McKay, who has enriched my life in the last few years that I've gotten to know him. And I'm privileged to be with you all. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be preaching from Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 18. Proverbs 30, verse 18. It says this. We're going to read through verse 19. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, and four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Lord, help us as we study today. I'd like to talk to you on the issue of how in the world you begin to direct adversity. Adversity is one of those things that nobody appreciates. We would all love it if our lives were paved with roses and petals and ease. Comfort is what we hope to wake up to every day. We don't like the fact when there are challenges that make us go beyond our comfort level and rise to a different place, although we realize that unless we do that, we cannot live in this world very well because the world is full of challenges. 
It's going in the opposite direction of the kingdom. Everything about the world says, do this, do that, and it's all wrong. And you are being trained here and indeed in your own homes as young people who are supposed to be like the salmon that, that swim the wrong way up the river in order to find home. Challenges and diversity are a part of life. James says this, When you encounter various trials, my brethren, make sure you count it all joy. It's in verse 2 of James. And I love my Bible. I've been walking with God, as I said, for a little bit. And I love the scriptures. I love my Jesus. I value everything it has to say to me. And every time I get in this word, boy, I'm telling you, I get something new. I find out more about God that I enjoy. But I must admit there are some scriptures that challenge my soul. And I say to God every once in a while, amongst all the Bible that's there, did you have to put that one there? I mean, I understand I got to go through trials, but why do you want me to be happy about it? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, my brethren. Joy? Listen, everybody in my world has to make an appointment to see me except my wife. People in my church, people in my community, people with the Redskins, they all got to make appointments. Everybody but my wife and trials. Trials just show up. They disappear at my front door. I didn't ask them to come. Don't want them there. And they just start knocking and I, I want to almost act as if they're not there. I'm not even going to answer the door today. But they don't leave. And they want to come in and they want to sit down and have dinner with me. And then breakfast the next day. And lunch. And then dinner again. And after a little bit, they're there all week long. And their main intent is this. Is to make Brett feel like he is worth less. That God doesn't love him near as much as he thought he did. And that he's less effective in the kingdom when they're done. Trials do nothing but try to weaken you so that you cannot have any joy. Remember that passage over in Nehemiah where it says, Oh, don't be, don't be sad, Nehemiah says to the people, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Trials come to weaken you so that you will not have joy, so that you will not have any strength to make it through. They come to depress you. They come to bat, bat, buffet your soul so that you don't want to go on anymore. And I don't know what your trials look like, but mine, every time they come to the door, seem to have been in the weight room. They're all yoked. They've been on steroids. Every time I see them, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've learned this, that if I do not encounter them with joy, then I am not going to find myself finding Christ in the middle of them more than I would if I had not encountered them with joy. And when they come to my door now, whereby it used to be I tried not to open, now I say this, I want you to know, I didn't plan for you to be here and I don't want you to be here. But now that you're here, my goal is that I'm going to be better than when you came. When you leave here, you're going to wish you never showed up because bread is going to be more like Jesus than when you walked into my life. Somehow or another, I'm going to be a better daddy. Somehow or another, I'm going to be a better Christian. Somehow or another, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better pastor. I'm going to be a better man for my community as a result of you coming in my world. Next time, you'll think twice before knocking at my life. The writer here 
in Proverbs, Solomon, actually his name is Augur, says this, there are some things that I don't understand, some things that are wonderful. Now, it's a riddle. He knows what he's talking about, but he's, po he's poisoning the words in such a way that you can now try to understand it as if he is understanding it, coming through the process of, of contemplation with him. Four things I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. You've got to make sure that you tell adversity what you want it to do for you when it comes, or else you will just go down the road. The way of an eagle in the sky. Eagles are amazing birds. When they fly, you hardly ever see them flap. They're up there in the sky, and their wingspan is about seven feet, and they're just gliding effortlessly. And I've noticed the difference between eagles and sparrows. Sparrows, when they fly, they never fly like this. I mean, they're working so fast you can barely see with your naked eye how the wings flap. It's just all the time working real hard to get wherever they got to go. But eagles seem to get where they need to go effortlessly. And that is because they soar upon thermals. You who are educated in science and the physics of the world understand that there are pockets of air that rise. And, 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 and heat happens to be that which rises, cold air falls. And when, these, when this heat rises, birds, eagles especially, have very good eyesight. In fact, a bird, if it could read, if a bird could read, could read a newspaper print at 200 yards. That's how good their eyesight is. Now, we can see thermals only when there is a huge contrast. When there is a road that you're traveling down in the summer in July on a highway and you look down and it's flat and you see this shimmering stuff coming up about a quarter mile down the road, that's the contrast between the heat of the road and the air and the hot air is rising. And we call those thermals. Well, birds have the ability to see that without the benefit of contrast. They don't need a road. And so they're standing there. And when they see that heat beginning to rise and that shimmer in the air, they jump. And they just begin to coast. And then they look for the next thermal and they coast some more. And they can do that all day long without expending much energy at all. Let me ask you, when the heat comes to your life, how do you respond? Most folk, when the heat comes to their life, they want to get out of the kitchen. I'm not interested in going through that. As I said earlier, the trials in our life are difficult. We don't want to go through them. But the eagle realizes this, unless I jump on that heat... I am not going to be elevated to the place to which I am supposed to be. And the trials in our life, the heat that comes to your life, when it really gets hot, you don't need to shy away from it. You need to jump into it. And God will perfect your character to such a degree that it will take you to higher heights. And you will soar above all the difficulties that most people struggle through on a regular basis. You'll find yourself more equipped to deal with the problems of this world, not just your problems. And I'm telling you what, you are not here at Liberty University just to be a better Christian. You are here at Liberty University to help lead the world to be a better place. It's not all about you. Definitely get your own life right, do what you need to do to be better. But we are called to be here by Almighty God so that we can do something to change the world. And the world needs changing. And when you see the heat coming to your life, jump into it and do not be afraid. Because after God finishes the character development in your soul, you are going to be better equipped to handle the higher things that come later on. 
This is what you do when adversity comes. You got to tell it what you want it to do for you. You have to direct adversity. Secondly, the writer says, the way of a serpent on a rock. Now, you good Bible students have understood that more often in Scripture, the, the enemy is characterized as a serpent, as a wily creature that doesn't play fair, sneaks up on you when you're not looking, does things that are outside the rules of the game. And the Bible often describes either God's presence or what he says as stability, even as a rock. And so the writer here says, I haven't been able to figure this one out, the way of a serpent on a rock. Now, I've been walking with the Lord for a while, and I, I still can't figure out why God leaves the devil in the earth. I mean, why? it'd be a whole lot better if he wasn't here. And believe me, I don't need him to mess up. I mean, people say, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. You did that. That was all you. We don't need much help to mess up. I mean, we are messed up as it is. And this is one of the reasons that God comes to us in, 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 in moments with difficulty at times in order to show us how messed up we really are. We think, most of us, that we're just one step away from being the kind of people we need to be. That when God thought about us in the beginning, we are really, really close to being that. You have no idea how messed up you really are. And you're some of the best people on the planet. You have no idea. We are so far away from what God intended that it takes all these trials to reveal to us what is wrong on the inside. If you didn't have difficulty, you'd think you were all right. But when that difficulty comes, all of a sudden, stuff starts coming out of your mouth. You ever notice that? I mean, I know you good Christians never say cuss words. Not here at Liberty. But every once in a while, the people that you know who say they're Christians, every once in a while might utter something that doesn't sound quite holy. Thoughts come to your brain about what you want to do to someone that did something to you. And although you may not act on it, it's down on the inside. And you're thinking about it. No, I didn't do it, but I thought about it. Oh, that situation where Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other one and, give it to, and, and let him hit that one too. Most of us, our first response would be this. You slap me, I slap you back. That's right. I ain't had that worked out of me yet. Now, seeing what our first response would naturally be, that allows us to see how much further we've got to go. And by the way, that scripture on turning the other cheek, that has nothing to do with pacifism. That has everything to do with reconciliation and being aggressive. Let me tell you why. Somebody hits you, hits you with a bad word, hits you with a betrayal, hits you with a theft, hits you with an offense. The Bible says this, you turn to them the side of you that is not hurt so that you can see them healed. You only got hit on one side. You do not present to them the side of you that's hurt because when you respond to them out of your own hurt, they can't be helped. By God's grace, God responded to us as a result of our slaps over and over again, not because he was hurt, but because he wanted us healed. We give them the other side of us. 
We are to be reconcilers on a regular basis. It takes a lot of character to get to that point of letting that be your knee-jerk response, not one you have to pray about for three or four days. That's how messed up we are. I don't know why the devil is still on the planet. I don't know, because I'd mess it up all by myself. But he's here, and I've decided this. The, the, the way of a serpent on a rock, it's hard sometimes to tell when things come to you, is this God or is this the devil? When it's so bad, it surely can't be God. The people of Israel were walking through the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. And it was a difficult time. Their society had been uprooted because they had been in, in, in Egypt for generations. And they had only learned one lifestyle. Now they were wanderers in a wilderness with no homes, living in tents. And they had to go from place to place because they were now gatherers. They couldn't plant anything. They didn't have a home yet. It was difficult for them. And there was a period in Exodus 17 where they were going from one place to another. And it took them longer than they thought. And they ran out of water. And they looked at Moses and they said, now wait a minute. What kind of leader are you? You lead us out here, you take us away from our homes, and they forgot about their oppression. They forgot about the fact that they were slaves. They forgot about how difficult it was when they were there. And now they were just mad at Moses. You lead us out here, and our babies ain't got no water. Mama's mad at me, and I don't know what to do about that. And I'm blaming you. You are a horrible leader for leading us in this direction. Says this, that they complained with Moses so much that they said, I wonder whether God is with us at all. When you are going through your most difficult time, when you can't find refreshing, you wonder whether God is with you. People always, where is he? You get in prayer and it feels like your prayers only go to the ceiling. They bounce right back. You can't hear his voice. You come to chapel and you don't feel the warmth that others are feeling. You feel this coldness around you. You can't connect with people who are Christians. You're trying as best you can to go to Bible study and you just don't feel his presence. And you wonder, where are you, oh God? If you haven't prayed that prayer yet, you haven't lived long enough. Sooner or later, you will pray that. And God will let you have the wilderness experience of not having any refreshment just to let you know what's down on the inside of you. He's going to dredge up some stuff that needs to come out. The people said, where is God? Is he with us or not? And they began to look at this circumstance as being more of the enemy rather than God. And that's all they saw. They saw the deprivation. They didn't see the test. And it says that God told Moses, go strike that rock and let water come out. And sure enough, it struck the rock and water came out. Now, this wasn't just a little pebble. This was a huge boulder because it watered about two million people and their animals. Massive water came out of this rock. And they all repented, but it was a moment for them to see what was down on the inside. Meaning, if God has led you out of your bondage, do you think he's going to let you die in the wilderness? Do you think he's going to let you die in your circumstance? He loves you too much. Oh, in Romans, Paul says, he who gave his son for us, in Romans chapter 8, if he gave his son freely for us, how much more will he give us all things in retrospect? Will he not provide all of our needs later? If he died for us while we were sinners, what's he going to do now that we're right? As you're going through these difficulties, realize he saved you when you were at your worst. Now you're better than your worst. He's surely going to meet you. He's just trying to get some stuff out of you so you could be what you ought to be. The people repented of their doubt and unbelief. And may I say this, they forgot to look at the rock in every circumstance. You need to not look at what the enemy's doing. You need to look at the rock underneath. 
had some people in my church that lost a little girl at the age of seven through leukemia. Painful, painful. And you know there's no smell of smoke on them. You went through and you talked to them and how you doing? Oh, we're just blessing God. We're blessing God. And it seems that the enemy took something very precious. But they looked at the underneath, the less obvious. And they said, you know, we are so happy that God privileged us to have seven years with that little girl. We're the only parents to whom he gave that girl. We are so grateful. When you go through your circumstances, do you see the God underneath the the difficult, difficult time through which you're going? The serpent on the rock. Don't notice the serpent so much. Notice the rock underneath. And through that difficult time, if you notice a rock, you will find water coming out of it. Out of your hard time will come the greatest moments of refreshing. If you've lived long enough to have some moments where you went through stuff and you got better than when you came in, then you'll notice that that moment becomes that time that you look back on in retrospect and say, God is still letting me be watered by that that hard circumstance. Still letting me be refreshed. Because he met me when I didn't think he could. Next, the way of a, a ship in the middle of the sea. This world is difficult to navigate through. It's hard to know sometimes the best decision to make. The ship in the middle of the sea was the hardest way to go, but it, 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 it provided the most direct and the best route, best way to get to where you needed to go. And back then, the writer was writing with respect to the Mediterranean Sea. There are ways to get where you needed to be. You could take a donkey. You get on a camel and ride. Traveling in the sea, you had to deal with waves. You had to deal with storms. You had to deal with darkness because the only way you could navigate, remember, there, there, there was no GPS back then. The only way you could navigate was to look at the stars. And if you had an extended period of storm, then there's no way you knew where you were going. Going in the middle of the sea, there are actually rivers in the middle of the sea that can direct you different ways, and you've got to navigate through those things. As they're taking you one way, you've actually got to go the other. If you've ever been on a sailboat, sometimes you have to direct your boat in this direction to go that direction and move your sail a different way. Navigating through the sea is the hardest way to go, but it is the best way to go because it will get you to your destination fastest. And this Christian life is difficult. It is not the easiest thing to do. In fact, it is one of the most difficult things to do to try to become Christ-like in a world that is damned, in a world that is difficult, in a world that is going the wrong direction. But it is the best way to go. You will be buffeted by waves. You will be tormented by storms. And listen, I wish we had Doppler radar in our life. I wish I could wake up on Tuesday and just pull a screen up on my own life and see the storm coming from the west in Kansas. And then figure out a different way to go. Doesn't happen with me like that. Doesn't happen with any of us. We don't have Doppler radar. The storms just show up. And when they show up, we've got to learn to navigate through them. And as a result of navigating through them, we reach our destination in the best way possible. There are other people that say there are different ways to go and better ways to go. The Bible is the best source of truth. Christianity is the best source of religion. And the church and institutions like this that promote it are the best way to be educated and to be discipled. It's a hard way to go, but it's the most sure. And lastly, the way of a man with a maid. I've been married for 21 years. 
and I married upstream, y'all. I got a better woman than I am man. She is phenomenal. I love that lady more today than I did when I said I do. She's treated me so good. She is the best version of woman I could have ever found. And when I wake up every day, there is one confirmation that is constant in my life. That if she's still there, I know God still loves me. Because anybody who can stay with me has to do it only by the grace of God. Having said all that, I have no idea who she is. 21 years married to the same woman, been faithful to her, love her with all my heart, and there are no two more different things than a man and a woman. Trying for, a man trying to understand a woman is one of the more difficult things he will ever do in life. Women don't think right. They don't think like we think. They don't process like we process. I mean, I come home, my wife wants to know how my day was. You know what I say? Fine. I lived it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I did that once already. She wants to know if I went out to lunch, what I had to eat. I said, food. What kind of food? Fish. What kind of fish? Salmon. How was it prepared? Oh, come on, baby, please. Don't make me do it again. <laughs> Couldn't figure out why does she want to know all these details. And then when I ask her, and this is a fatal question for a man, how'd your day go? Oh, get ready. Oh, get ready. Well, we did homeschooling today, and I went through it with your 14-year-old. Your 14-year-old's really having some difficulty, and I can't figure out what's going on with him. But I think he's doing okay. But you know his basketball coach called today and said they don't have practice. They have a, a, a music lesson later on today, which can't, practice was canceled, so he can go to that too. And the music teacher seems to want to come to church. I, I don't know what happened. Did you minister to him? By the way, there's somebody else who called and said they're going to the hospital because they need ministry in your life. And, 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 and it goes on and on, and all you wanted to know all you wanted to know was how our day went like you thought it needed to be answered fine <laughs> women don't understand men they don't understand why we're sitting in front of ESPN and can watch the same highlights over and over and over and over they don't know why they don't know why we answer like headline news. And we ask, they ask us how things are, and we answer in one word, fine. Or why we grunt, or why we leave our drawers in the middle of the bedroom floor. They don't know why. They don't know why we're satisfied with our, really satisfied with our clothes when they got holes in them. They don't know why. Time to throw them away. No, no, they just got good. Men and women are different. But men, if you don't grow to understand and love your wife, you'll have conflict all your days. And young people, I'm telling you what. I've been to seminary 
and I know my Bible a little bit, but the greatest education in life I've gotten is learning how to communicate with my bride. So much so that now when she asks me, how was lunch? I said, baby, it was great. I had a conversation with Tim Say, who's one of the pastors in our area, and we just talked about our lives and our relationship, and I had this fish that was incredible. It was blackened, and they put a little honey glaze on it, and it was really, really nice. I had some broccoli on the side that was drenched in butter. It was gorgeous. And then some mashed potatoes, and they did some stuff and put some cheese, and it was really, really good. And then for dessert, I had this cheesecake, and look, I brought you a piece home. The way of a man with a maid, to sit and listen, to dialogue, to have an ear that is really happy to hear when your voice, her voice, just goes on and on. (laughs) Men speak about 15,000 words a day. Women speak about 35. It's the truth. And when men speak their 15,000, they are at work. So when they come home, they filled their quota. Women are just starting because all they said to their little kids is, no. All day long. No. Stop. No. No. Stop. So when they come home, they want some real dialogue. Gentlemen, that's when you need to kick in. Now, I realize most of you all are married, but I'm giving you a heads up. Heads up. You want your wife to love you and you're 21 like she loved you the day she said I do? You be like this. Adversity, differences will come to your life, and you'll have to handle them and work through them. But God wants to do something very special in your relationships so that, my goodness, that oneness that the world needs to experience in a husband and wife relationship can really be seen. And it's supposed to be one of the best witnesses on the planet. God made man and and woman in his image. Male and female, he created them. When a husband and wife get together and got the thing going on whereby the relationship is just incredible, folks look on and say, how'd y'all do that? We tried it. It doesn't work. It only works with God because he's the architect of the relationship. Adversity is a part of life. Differences come. Contrary things you can't get away from. But when the heat comes to your life like the eagle... Jump on it and soar. When you find circumstances that are untoward and you think the devil is messing with you too much, look for God in the middle of it and watch for refreshing to come through your most difficult time. Doubt not. When you find it difficult doing this Christian life, going contrary to what the world wants to do, realize this is the best way to go. And lastly, when you finally get together with that person with whom God has called you, Figure out a way to make your relationship complementary and not conflicting. Father in heaven, I'm asking for your blessing on these dear people. Let adversity be that which trains them because they submit to you on a regular basis. Let your grace and kindness and strength empower them to be the kind of folks they need to be. We honor you and we bless you for their commitment to you. In Christ's name, amen. Reverend Fuller, we thank you, and uh, based on Johnny's testimony this morning, I just let you know that if you need to talk to someone, uh, we have a care office, Uh, Dane Emmerich is available, 
Folks, I hope you have a great weekend. Enjoy, and I'll see you back here Monday morning in Convo.